Hi, I'm Len at from Lean Pub, and in this Lean Pub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Paolo Amoroso. Based in Milan, Paolo is a space and astronomy popularizer, a Google product expert, and co-host of Astronauticast, the first Italian podcast devoted to space that's been around since, I believe, 2007. He has spent his career in space-related outreach, space and astronomy-related outreach and education at the Brera Astronomical Museum and the Ulrico Hoopley Planetarium in Milan. He is also a board member of the Italian Space and Astronautics Association, the parent organization for Astronauticast. Paolo is the author of the Lean Pub book, Space Apps for Android, Discover the Best Astronomy and Space Apps. In the book, Paolo sets out some of the best Android apps available on the Google Play Store for anyone with an interest in space and astronomy and people just discovering the amazing ways for understanding and exploring the moon, the solar system, and the universe, uh, and anything else you'd like to know about the space around us. Uh, the book is based on Paolo's very popular collection, Space Apps for Android, Mobile Space and Astronomy, which had nearly a quarter of a million followers on Google Plus and was featured by Google. In this interview, we're going to talk about Paolo's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk about his experience using LeanPub to self-publish his book based on a Google Plus collection. So, Google Plus collection. So thank you, Paolo, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Thanks to you, Len, for having me, and hello to the listener of uh, uh, the Front Matter podcast. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in space and astronomy. I was born in southern Italy in a small town named Copertino, which has the same uh, uh, origin for its name as the Cupertino in the Silicon Valley, but it's a completely different place. But uh, I always lived in the northern part of, uh, of Italy, in Milan, which is the second largest country in, in Italy. And uh, I got interested in astronomy and space uh, at a very young age when I was a kid, in the early 1970s, uh, when um, I followed the news uh, on TV and media about the Apollo program, for example, uh, lunar exploration and the follow-up missions, uh, Skylab and Apollo Soyuz. So uh, I got started by learning about space from uh, what were back then uh, news, uh, what was uh, currently going on in the space program. And uh, did you did you study a related subject in in school? Um, yes, I started studying. Uh, uh, I enrolled in uh, physics at the university, but uh, didn't complete. I switched uh, to computer science later, but uh, I'm a serial dropout, so <laughs> I didn't do neither. And 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 how did you get into uh, the popularization of space and astronomy? Almost by chance, in uh, in the early 1980s, uh, uh, back then in Milan, where, as I said, I always lived, uh, the uh, astronomy popularization and uh, education community uh, was small. So uh, when uh, uh, there was some need for someone to, for example, do a lecture or something, uh, some other related uh, a public outreach activity. Uh, uh, the major institution back then, for example, the local planetarium, reached out to the few amateur astronomers uh, uh, available. So I got in touch with them. Uh, I was an amateur astronomer. I was a member of the local 
astronomic lab, and so it was easy to get involved. And um, it's it's really interesting. When I was uh, researching for this interview, I was reminded of an experience I had a couple of years ago where I was talking to a colleague's young brother who had just started university and he was majoring in chemistry. And it, it just struck me all of a sudden how much the teaching of chemistry must have changed in the last, let's say, 25 years since I studied it in university. And I, I started watching online lectures and it was just amazing to me the advances in the ways you can communicate concepts in chemistry to people now compared to back then. And I'm sure the same thing has happened uh, in, in astronomy and space. What are, what are some of the biggest, can, can you recall some of the biggest, one or two of the biggest moments you had where things really changed in the way you could communicate to people about space? Yes, uh, everything changed in the way uh, we do outreach uh, and education in astronomy. And uh, the most important thing that changed is uh, uh, probably uh, the internet, uh, uh, the web. Uh, not just uh, for uh, the most obvious th thing we may think about when uh, uh, considering this uh, this uh, uh, new channel for communication, but uh, uh, not just the way we can, for example, we have uh, uh, images we can get images from uh, space exploration uh, or data, but uh, the way the professionals who do outreach and education can access uh, uh, first-hand sources uh, and data. That is, uh, before the internet, uh, uh, we it was really difficult to get our hands on uh, uh, even popularization books uh, or resources, let alone the original sources. And... Uh, in Milan, uh, there was uh, um, a very well-stocked library uh, focusing also on uh, science and astronomy. And uh, we had to um, pre-order to purchase books uh, uh, that were difficult to find. And it took them uh, even months to, uh, to, to ship them or to... To, to get from the original sources. And uh, with the internet, uh, online commerce, uh, Amazon back then, it was uh, much easier to get uh, our hands on the original sources and uh, enough material to, to, to use in these activities. Yeah, and I imagine uh, one of the um, big changes too has of course been in, in visualization. I remember as a, as a kid, I had a poster on the wall, probably from National Geographic or something like that of, you know, galaxies uh, and just enjoyed looking at it. And I mean, if I'd had some of the stuff that was available today to visualize things, it would have been uh, way more interesting than a, than a sort of dead tree poster. Yes. Back then, uh, uh, we could buy, for example, uh, slide sets. Uh, by slides, I mean uh, film slides. Uh, um, kids today... Uh, Think of slides uh, as uh, in PowerPoint slides, but uh, my generation, our generations also uh, was familiar with film slides. And we used those uh, media, those visuals uh, in our lectures and activities. We needed uh, slide projector, projectors, uh, which were bulky, difficult to, to find, expensive uh, to use. So it was uh, 
even difficult to show some visuals. One thing I was looking forward to asking you about is uh, the Italian uh, space industry and space program. It's, it's really one of the fun things about this podcast is interviewing people from all around the world. And often I get to ask them, you know, what's the tech startup scene like in your country or in your city? And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the space program and the space industry in Italy currently. Yes, uh, there are major uh, space industries uh, in in the country. Uh, if you think that uh, uh, slightly less than half of the uh, western uh, of the U.S. part of the International Space Station, that is the non-Russian one, uh, was built in Italy, either as a contribution uh, to the International Space Station program uh, on behalf, for example, of the European Space Agency or uh, or, a con- or a contribution with the bilateral agreements with NASA and the Italian Space Agency, or um, on behalf of NASA itself uh, for uh, their own contribution to the space pro- program. So uh, most of that part was built in, uh, in Turin, in, uh, in the plans of uh, uh, was, what is now Thales Alenia Space. For example, and uh, I believe you've you've worked uh, on a book by an Italian astronaut. Yes, um, the astronaut is uh, Samantha Cristoforetti. Uh, she's the friend. She's a friend, and uh, she's uh, uh, one of the of the astronauts uh, who are part of the latest uh, group of European astronauts. They were selected in uh, two thousand nine. And um, she's uh, one of two Italian astronauts. And I happened to meet her before uh, she became an astronaut because uh, uh, she was a space enthusiast like me and many others. And she joined uh, the online discussion forum I was a member of. It's named Forum Astronautico and is now... Uh, one of the resources of the Italian Space and Astronautics uh, Association. So she uh, she joined the forum. She started discussing space uh, like us, uh, with us. And uh, when the time came, uh, uh, she joined the selection. Uh, uh, she applied for the selection by the European Space Agency in uh, 2008, and she was selected. She was selected. Uh, the following year. That's amazing. It must have been so exciting to to follow her her path. Yes, her complete journey from uh, um, from a space enthusiast from a, to a space professional to a real astronaut. And has she been to the International Space Station? Uh, yes, she was in uh, to the International Space Station from uh, uh, November two thousand fourteen to. Uh, uh, June 2015. She was. Uh, she spent about 200 uh, days uh, on, uh, on the space station. Wow, that's that's just what an incredible adventure. So space space is in the news sort of all the time, but it's 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 interesting. Uh, I'm I'm just you know a headline reader who enjoys following such things like so many other people. But you know this is something that you know a great deal about. So I wanted to ask you a few questions about some of the things that people see in the headlines and what you think about them. For example, when it comes to SpaceX. They've been doing a lot of innovating. Amongst their many achievements, what, what's impressed you the most? Uh, 
What impressed me the most uh, is, uh, of course, the landings of the first stages of their rockets. Uh, it took them much longer than expected, but uh, the, the, the technology now seems to be quite solid. And it's uh, really impressive because uh, this is something that uh, has been discussed uh, and planned for a very long time uh, in the space industry. But uh, uh, they, were, they were the first to make this uh, practical. And uh, beyond their technical achievements, uh, uh, they should be credited also for reviving interest uh, in space, enthusiasm, real enthusiasm for uh, space. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for that answer. The, the, um, of course, the other uh, big, big private company that we read about generally in the news is um, Blue Origins, or Blue Origin, I'm sorry if I'm getting that Blue wrong. Origin. Blue Origin, sorry, uh, by yeah, Jeff Bezos's company. Um, and yeah, while preparing for this interview just last night, I watched this recent presentation he gave. It was just, just I think, a few days ago about his vision for the future of human expansion into space. Uh, did, did you, have you seen that yet? Uh, I have heard the news. Uh, I haven't seen the presentation yet, but uh, again, there's uh, something uh, uh, similar to what we discussed uh, earlier about SpaceX. In a way, uh, Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin are uh, um, refining uh, an idea that uh, has be had been circulating uh, in, uh, in the space world uh, since the 1970s. Uh, that is... Uh, the idea of building human colonies in space, uh, this is, of course, in the long term, and um, using uh, space around planets to, uh, to colonize, to thrive, and uh, to use the resources of, uh, not to uh, build settlements on the surface of planets, which takes a lot of energy, but uh, to use the space around planets. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really interesting. Um, there's a, during his presentation, he he plays a clip of Isaac Asimov saying, "Many of us in the science fiction world have always been uh, planet chauvinists. When we've thought about expansion into space, we've always thought about colonizing the surface of planets. But this idea that instead of living on the surface of planets, one option humans have for colonizing space is to extract resources from planets, but then construct these habitable environments in space." Yes. There's much more flexibility. Yeah, no, I, I just, I, I mean, uh, I don't want to get you in trouble with, <laughs> with your community, but uh, uh, I confess personally having no stake in it. I'm, I'm a total skeptic. I, I don't believe at all that it's ever going to happen. It was, it was, I found it quite strange the way Bezos grounded his argument for why, and, and I, know you have, you have, I, I, I know you haven't seen the video, but he grounds his argument for why we should do this on the idea that if we don't, we're going to have to ration electricity in the future or energy. And I just don't, I, I confess, I just don't see, I mean, with something as, as, as the amount of work it's taken to create and maintain and operate the International Space Station, which is an amazing achievement, seems to me to be in itself all the proof we need that we're never going to be able to do something like Bezos is proposing. Uh, what, what do you think? Uh, you are not the only uh, skeptic about uh, uh, not just the possibility of uh, doing something like that, but uh, 
the time frames, for example. And um, the International Space Station is a good example because uh, uh, the main lesson learned from this uh, huge project is how to operate uh, a very complex machine uh, with uh, humans aboard, uh, even in low Earth orbit, uh, which is just around the corner. And uh, the scale of uh, even a small corny and the challenges of uh, operating it, that is uh, making it just work, let alone uh, produce uh, energies or resources or do other activities. But uh, the, the scale of, of all this is huge. Even just to keep the International Space Station running, you have uh, teams with uh, dozens of engineers and technicians all around the world, uh, all the world, uh, working around the clock uh, every day and uh, planning and replanning everything uh, whenever changes, for example. They have more than one plan. So it takes a re- really a lot of work to, to scale such an effort. Yeah, and you, you kind of have to be a superhero to be an astronaut in the first place. Uh, it just it just seems like we're you know you know maybe maybe we'll have some space tourism from Blue Origin and and Virgin and stuff like that. But you know even that term you know it's kind of like you know we're gonna we're gonna get you into low Earth orbit for a few minutes for three hundred thousand dollars each. Thank you very much. And it just strikes me that like this isn't that's as far as we're ever going to go with that kind of thing. Is is the the feeling I'm left with when I when I think about it? Uh, yes. Uh, um... Uh, both these companies, uh, SpaceX uh, and uh, Blue Origin, are taking a lot of time, uh, not just for the technical challenges of such an endeavor, but uh, uh, for the unknowns, uh, for the, uh, the setbacks, uh, for example, the accidents uh, SpaceX uh, had in the past, and even recently testing uh, a crude capsule. So it takes uh, much longer than expected. Uh, I wanted to ask you about Astronauticast. Um, it was very interesting hearing this. I believe I believe the podcast started in 2007, which is um, yes. quite early for podcasting. Uh, and I believe it's also award-winning. So I was wondering if you could tell tell us a little bit about the, the podcast. Uh, we started Astronauticast uh, in 2007 uh, as a, a spin-off activity of our uh, Forum Astronautico, that is the, the online co- discussion community based on uh, a discussion board uh, we had for Italian space enthusiasts. Uh, we started uh, with uh, the online discussions, that is the text-based discussions that uh, a traditional discussion board platform makes, makes possible. But uh, uh, among uh, us, among the, among the founders and uh, uh, the main contributors to this community, there were a few podcasting uh, uh, enthusiasts. So it was uh, uh, natural to, to try something similar for, with the, the resources of our own community and um, start doing an Italian podcast. Back then, there were no uh, space podcasts in Italy and even few uh, uh, independent podcasts. And uh, to this day... Uh, Astronauticast is the only space podcast. 
And uh, besides doing the, the regular uh, audio episodes, uh, we occasionally do also uh, uh, some live streams or, for example, uh, space events like uh, launches uh, and, uh, and so on. Space shuttle launches a few years ago and now uh, Soyuz launches uh, to the International Space Station. And we do also video streams. For example, we comment in Italian the, the images from NASA TV and other official sources. And we also did this for the launch of our friend, Samantha Cristoforetti, back in November of 2014. And we had a peak of around 60,000 simultaneous viewers. And uh, we were the, the major online source to do a live stream because um, although the Italian Space Agency also had the plan and set up a live stream on their own website, their own website crashed uh, around an hour earlier uh, for the huge load because uh, Samantha Cristoforetti is the, the first female Italian astronaut. So there was a huge interest. And uh, we used uh, YouTube as our um, video streaming platform, which, of course, has no such scale issues. So it held uh, very well. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really great. It's, it's, it's just so, so great to hear that there, uh, there's so much interest in, in, uh, in space and in, uh, in launches that it can sustain, you know, 60,000 viewers uh, for, for a live stream. That's just wonderful. Um, uh, so uh, moving on to the next part of the interview, so in addition to your, your work popularizing space and astronomy, uh, you're also a product expert for Google, and yes. I believe you were a founding member of the Google Plus Create program, uh, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. So what, what is a product expert for Google? Uh, the product experts, uh, as uh, they are now called, we are... Uh, first called uh, top contributors, but there was recently a rebrand of the program, are the volunteer uh, who ask, the, who, ask uh, who answer um, support questions in the official uh, Google product forms. For example, if you have an issue with Google Play, Google Maps, uh, or Google Photos, or, or any other of the Google products, you can post in the official product forms. And... Um, we are the volunteers uh, who answer these questions, and we have a few additional. We are recognized by you, uh, Google, and we have a few additional uh, resources. For example, such as access to Google for, say, escalating some major issues or get some uh, clarifications on how products work uh, to better answer user questions and so on. So this is a, a formal program. Of for, from Google, they uh, select uh, uh, volunteers in all their forums, uh, and we are part of this uh, official program. And how do you become a part of it for anyone listening who might want to have that kind of access and influence themselves? The, the better thing you can do is to just uh, start posting in any of the official uh, product forums, and uh, you'll get noticed uh, by us or by Googlers. And uh, you'll be contacted uh, if you do a good work. Uh, you'll be invited to join uh, the program. There's also a, an application form, but uh, if, if you don't have uh, any activity uh, before, uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit more involved. 
I'm really, I'm really curious because I rely on, on quite a few Google products in my day-to-day life, personal and professional, and I spend a lot of time shouting at the screen. Uh, if I were particularly at Gmail, <laughs> uh, and so I say that in the context of I use these things all the time, and they're mostly quite amazing, but there are some things that just seem insane. If if I were to if I were I mean if, if I were to go onto say the like a Gmail form, what are the chances that a nobody like me could actually have an influence on the product's design? Uh, do you mean by suggesting, for example, uh, uh, by providing feature suggestions or other feedback? Yeah, yeah. Like for for example, just to be very specific, for example, I find it incredible that Gmail hides email addresses from the user. So if I if I'm creating an email in Gmail and I type in someone's name, someone's email address, it will replace it with their account name. And it might even completely hide the, the from account and only show a name for the to account rather than an email address. And I'm only going into detail because I'm sure like everyone listening here has some specific thing like that sure. out there that they find crazy. And so, I mean, I used to work in a, in a job where if you, if you emailed the wrong person, the wrong information, you could, you know, get sued or go to jail. And so the idea of hiding information, crucial information about what you're doing from you for the sake of the, the pleasantness of the experience or something like that is just wild. And yeah, so I mean, I guess would I, would I have to kind of haunt them for months in order to get listened to? Um, I don't know what are the chances of uh, a, a specific uh, suggestion to be implemented, but uh, what I can say it is it is... Uh, is is that it's very important to sub- submit your feedback because even uh, if uh, Gmail or other major Google products have uh, hundreds of millions of even billions of, of users, um, it's important for Google to, to have all this feedback because... Uh, they can see, for example, trends. If many people request uh, specific feedback, they may consider it. What I can say for sure is that uh, Google does monitor and read the feedback users send. Uh, I have uh, uh, talked with, uh, discussed with Googlers uh, who uh, do uh, read uh, this feedback, they encourage this feedback. They can't guarantee, of course, that every each and every request is implemented. And um, if you think about it, uh, even not even uh, open source software projects uh, implement every uh, feature request. For example, even if you uh, submit uh, a patch uh, to an open source project, uh, they may uh, they may reject it for, uh, for example, for technical reasons, feasibility reasons for. Uh, because it, it, it's not a good fit for the product uh, or so on. But uh, all suggestions, all feedback is monitored and uh, uh, reviewed by Google. Well, that's if they, if sure. they don't know uh, what uh, the users want, uh, they can not implement what they don't know uh, users want. So, so that's, keep that's... Uh, sending your feedback. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. That's really that's really uh, great to hear. I guess I've always, probably like many other people, I've always related to Google as this you know huge corporation that yes. is not necessarily listening. I mean, I, I, I you know I'm you know 
very sympathetic to what you were saying about how you know not every feature request gets gets implemented. Uh, we get we get these every day, and we love hearing them. Uh, anybody who has any feature requests or you know any complaints similar to mine about Gmail about LeanPub, please let us know. Uh, we love hearing them. But uh, yeah, I guess I guess it's when when something gets when you're relating to something so big, it's often easy to relate to it as faceless when actually it's made up of many different very face-having people. And so um, one thing I wanted to ask you about in particular, so you, you were an early adopter of Google+, Plus, uh, I believe. Um, yes. And I'd like to talk to you about that because uh, one thing you mentioned in your book and I think in your, in your blog is that the image that sort of people who sort of read the tech sites might have of Google+, Plus is not necessarily match the experience that uh, a lot of its users had of it. Uh, and, and just to be clear for everyone listening, Google Plus was a was Google's. I mean, Paolo can give a much better explanation of it than I can. But but in, in brief, it was Google's attempt at a social media platform, uh, and it just closed down for good on uh, April second, I believe. Yes. Uh, and so, yeah. What 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 was what what would, if you were if there was someone out there who'd never used Google Plus and only came across snarky references to it on TechCrunch or something like that? How would you explain to them what what TechCrunch or what sorry, pardon me, what Google Plus was really like for users who liked it? Uh, Google Plus for, was uh, different for from uh, other social platforms uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, um, it didn't have uh, a a specific defining feature that uh, set it off uh, from other platforms, but uh, many features combined made the experience uh, uh, better. For example, all posts were uh, uh, publicly viewable on the public web. You didn't have to sign up uh, or to have an account to uh, to read or to view the posts. And um, um Google Plus pioneered a number of features uh, that were later adopted or became more widespread. For example, the Hangouts video calls. Uh, many activities uh, uh, took off from uh, uh, these features, uh, which became uh, popular video streams uh, uh, of uh, events or discussions uh, or uh, something like that. So the, it wasn't a single feature that uh, uh, set Google Plus apart from other platforms, but a combination of features and community that made it uh, unique and a great experience. And uh, so what, uh, what ultimately killed it? It's difficult to know. Uh, one of the factors uh, was uh, uh, certainly most likely uh, low adoption. Uh, we we didn't have. We will probably never have uh, uh, any re- reliable numbers, metrics, or other data. But uh, what was probably uh, likely is that, is that uh, it didn't have uh, the critical mass to make it uh, a platform worth uh, keeping. But uh, it's very difficult to to know. What was what ultimately was the the reason why Google killed the product? And does it does it still exist uh, in a under a different name in an enterprise version? Yes, it's now called uh, Google Currents. Uh, it's the same name uh, that was uh, previously used for 
a product that later became Google Play's newsstand and now is Google News, but uh, the name uh, is the same. Okay, okay. It's uh, now um, available only to G Suite uh, enterprise uh, customers. And one, one uh, interesting thing I came across that you wrote, I think in a blog post, was uh, you, you, so when Google Plus uh, was finally killed, you and many other people were, were stuck. You had all this content, you had all this time that you'd spent on the platform, and now you, 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 know, you still had more things you wanted to say, uh, and you had to find a new place to say them. And you, you mentioned very specifically uh, in this blog post, anything Facebook is a deal breaker for me. Yes. <laughs> uh, Facebook has been in the news a lot lately. Uh, it's been in the news a lot for a while now, but they've been talking about an Annus Horribilis and things like that. Uh, and so I was wondering, I mean, I've got some pretty strong opinions about it. What, what, what is it about Facebook that makes it a deal breaker for you? Um, because um, uh, there are a number of reasons, both technical and uh, uh, related to the company. The technical reasons are that uh, I don't like uh, the... Uh, the product, the user interface, uh, which is uh, very busy, cluttered. Uh, there is too much content, too, too many ads, uh, and so on. And then uh, I don't like uh, the company. It's a personal preference, of course. Uh, there are lots of people who use and enjoy uh, the platform. So good for them. But uh, um, I think uh, that uh, Facebook... Uh, uh, went uh, way beyond uh, uh, the even the the loose stand ethical standards of the the tech industry, the pretty loose standards of, of the technical industry. They went uh, way beyond. So uh, I think they they can't change. The um, I, I'm I'm uncomfortable at, at uh, the idea of using the product. Uh, I'll. Uh, I have. I still have an old account. I'm going to delete uh, soon, but uh, I haven't been using it for years. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for that. I mean, I I couldn't agree with you more about the um, the experience of using it and the the busyness and the complexity that you're presented with. And when you when you start to understand that, like behind every one of those things shouting at you is somebody who's highly incentivized to get you to click on that part, uh, and they're in competition with other people at Facebook to get you to click on the that part of Facebook that they're in charge of. Uh, once you realize that that's actually what you're what you're looking at is a bunch of people competing for your attention in that way, even internally to Facebook, not just Facebook as a monolith. It becomes a very yes. gross experience. And um, I just wanted to share one. Uh, the sort of best meaning, the sort of the worst Facebook story I've ever heard was a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, uh, decided for a number of reasons he just wanted to delete his Facebook account. And you know, I think it's a lot easier now than it was. He did this a, a year or two ago, but. You know, he, he had to click to delete, you know, a, a number of times and he kept getting prompted, are you sure, are you sure, are you sure? And at one point, it showed him the face of someone he hadn't seen for three years saying, so-and-so will miss you if you leave. Uh, and the um, manipulativeness of that in itself is sort of bad enough. But the reason he hadn't seen the person's face for three years, because it was his brother who committed suicide three years earlier. And, and here was Facebook serving up this face after his repeated attempts to get off of it, to try and manipulate, straightforwardly manipulate him emotionally to stay on. And, you know, when I hear stories about, you know, Facebook's other transgressions, you know, it's the, it's the very idea that people could be behind something like that and what would be motivating them to do things like that to users that really 
ultimately, I think, crystallized my feelings about that product. Uh, by the way, I don't mind uh, having a, a, a company, a, a corporation, uh, a, a business entity have my data if I get some value back. But uh, in the case of Facebook, uh, I think uh, uh, they cross every line of uh, not just ethics, but uh, uh, fairness uh, or trust or anything like that. They go way beyond uh, what's uh, expected, even uh, considering the loose ethical standards of the tech industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. Thanks for sharing your opinion about that. <laughs> really appreciate it. Um, so uh, moving on to the next part of the interview and talking about your book. So you had this um, collection on Google+, which, uh, which, is a term, which was a term of art for the platform. So as I understand it, you could post, post things uh, and, if, and you could create a collection of your posts around a particular uh, topic. Uh, and you had created this wonderful collection uh, of space and astronomy apps for Android. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what got you started posting about space apps. Uh, if you compare uh, Google Plus, uh, a Google Plus profile to a blog, for example, a, a collection would be a set of posts uh, tagged uh, with the same tag. For example, all, po all posts about uh, astronomy or uh, Google or publishing or so. So a collection was a, a, a themed grouping of uh, related posts. So just a fancy name for um, related posts of, on the same topics. And um, I started posting about... Um, uh, space apps uh, and astronomy apps for Android uh, uh, early in my use of Google Plus around uh, late uh, 2012, around that time, because it was just one of my interested interests. Uh, this was before there were collections uh, uh, in Google Plus. The, these features was released around uh, 2015. So uh, at that time, I grouped all these posts, which were part of the, the same collection. They were uh, browsable, for example, in a single page, uh, and uh, the user could subscribe, could follow only those uh, uh, posts to get uh, updates. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to research for these interviews, but uh, it's rare that it's just straightforwardly fun. And I had a lot of fun uh, researching for this one because I just sort of pulled out an old uh, Android phone I have and uh, downloaded apps like the ones that you list uh, in that were in your collection and are now in, in your book. Uh, and it was an incredible amount of fun. It's amazing the diversity of apps out there on astronomy and space, at least at least to me as an, as an outsider with no expectations about it. Uh, you know, the idea that, you know, my phone knows where I am in the world and it knows what direction I'm facing and it knows what angle I'm pointing the phone at towards the sky so it can show me what the stars would be if, you know, if I was looking at these things, these apps in the daytime, but if it were nighttime, I would have been able to match up what I was seeing on the phone to what I was seeing in the sky. I could download... Um, really detailed 3D visualizations of, uh, you know, ro the Mars rovers uh, from different apps and also, you know, AR experiences. And, and there are also these apps that are just, I mean, for things that I don't, 
don't claim to even remotely understand, but for people who are really sort of into astronomy, the, the amount of data and information that you can get is just in, in, in the matter of seconds on your phone is just incredible. What's, what's, what's the app that, that blows you away the most? And by the way, uh, this is uh, related to uh, something we discussed earlier about the availability of uh, first-hand sources and data. Uh, the app that uh, blows my mind is uh, an app, uh, it's actually better to access the mobile website, to get the real-time telemetry of the International Space Station. It was an app originally developed by NASA and then uh, spun off. They no longer maintain it, but uh, a private, a private uh, aerospace company does that. And there's a website and an app that's no longer maintained on which you can follow the real-time telemetry of the International Space Station. Uh, most of the data, uh, I, uh, um, the actual flight controllers can have the main subsystems, that is. And uh, I, I had a friend that worked at uh, one of the control centers of the one of the laboratories of the International Space Station, he could compare the telemetry from the app and from the actual telemetry, and they were uh, almost in real time. There was a delay or no more than a second or two. Uh, for example, when there's a, an extravehicular activity going on, a spacewalk, the astronaut enter an airlock, they depressurize it, and then they exit in the vacuum of space. And while they depressurize, uh, you can see uh, the pressure in the airlock uh, falling. You can follow, for example, uh, the decrease, or when, for, uh, when there's an issue with the electrical system, you can follow the telemetry of the uh, decreased uh, uh, levels, for example, voltage, energy production, and so on. That's really that's really amazing. It's it's amazing not only that it's available, but, but that you can technically uh, get that information through a mobile website or through an app, but that it's that it's shared. Is that is that something new that in in space programs that public sharing of of so much information? Uh, do you mean uh, uh, why there are so much information now? Yeah, I mean, was it was it the kind of thing that would have been kept secret in the past and was only recently made available to people? Um, I don't think so. I, I think uh, the space agency or, or whoever had the information didn't realize there may be interest for this kind of data. It's more um, the lack of such information in the past, I think, was more incidental than a deliberate decision. Oh, that's really interesting. It's really interesting. It never occurred to me. I always, I was always thought of it as something, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess this kind of dates me, but I always saw so much of space as being kind of a Cold War-like endeavor that, that people would have been actively keeping information secret. But that's such a, that's a part of history now, I suppose. Well, in some cases, there's still something like that going on. For example, for exploration, for scientific missions in the solar system, uh, in some cases, the group of researchers that uh, manage these uh, uh, spacecraft, uh, these missions, decide to release only part of the information so that they can have access to the, all the science data and they can publish, uh, rightly publish, uh, earlier results uh, or discoveries. So 
they may release the data later or never at all. Okay, okay. Uh, speaking, speaking of publishing, that actually gives me an opportunity to move on to the, the last part of the interview where we talk about your experience uh, as an author writing and publishing a book. And so you, you, had, you found yourself with this very popular collection on Google Plus and wanted to find a new outlet for it. Uh, and eventually you chose LeanPub. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what led you to make that decision. It was a natural fit because uh, uh, LeanPub uh, focuses uh, on uh, allowing the publication of works in progress or uh, works that need to be updated frequently. And that's the case of both my own collections and Android apps in general. Um, I didn't have a complete book from the collection, but uh, it was a good starting point. It says it's uh, as if I uh, imported the posts uh, from a blog, which is uh, uh, one something that uh, LeanPub uh, supports natively. For example, you have tools for importing uh, uh, posts from WordPress or Broggle posts. Uh, there was no specific tool for Google+, Plus, but it was easy to just copy and paste the original posts in the, in the, in the source manuscript. And uh, this is one of the reasons. I didn't have a complete book, but a good starting point. And I wanted to publish an initial uh, version of this book to LeanPub before Google+, Plus was uh, shut down, so that I could discuss uh, uh, both the, the book and the process with the fellow creators, for example, members of the Google, Cre uh, Google Plus Create program. Uh, we frequently uh, discussed uh, publishing content, uh, reusing content. Uh, and uh, shortly after the publication of my book, uh, we did an online discussion and interview uh, about uh, my experience with the LeanPub. I was interviewed by one of them with the other members of uh, the Google Plus uh, Google Plus Create program. And the other reason why uh, LeanPub is a good fit is because uh, mobile apps frequently change. Uh, some no longer exist, uh, new ones uh, are released and uh, others have new features. So it's important to be able to update a book or any source that covers uh, these apps. And so I'm, re I'm really curious about what your experience was like creating a book from these posts. So the, uh, your, your book was written in plain text on LeanPub in Markua, which is our plain text markup syntax for writing books. So you know, the way it works is you, instead of for anyone listening who's not, not, doesn't know what those words mean, uh, it's, it's kind of like, you know, in the olden days when you were typing on a typewriter, if you underlined something that was in an indication to the publisher that it should ultimately be turned into italics. And so when you write a book in LeanPub, you're writing it in plain text, which means if you want something in bold, you put asterisks around it or in the manuscript itself. Did you Were you familiar, Paolo, with, with writing that way before writing your LeanPub book? Yes, I was uh, comfortable with uh, Marcua because... Uh, uh, I've been a long-time user of, for example, Tech or uh, LaTeX, uh, the formatting languages. Uh, I'm uh, very familiar with uh, uh, text, forma uh, text formatting languages, so 
Marcua was is just uh, uh, one of them. Great, great, great. That's that's great to know. Uh, and 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 so um, when you so you when you sort of had you had this content on Google Plus. Did you were you able to sorry to get in the weeds here, but were you able to download that contact in like that content in plain text format? I did download the the, the data from Google Plus before before it was shut down, but I didn't use the, that data as a base for the manuscript. I just copied and pasted the, the plain text of the posts from Google Plus while it was still online. So uh, that's uh, an additional motivation for getting the book, uh, the book out before the shutdown of the platform. It was uh, a pretty slow head to copy and paste the text of around uh, uh, 150 posts. Uh, but uh, it was probably easier than uh, figuring where the content was in the couple of gigabytes of data I had downloaded from Google Plus. So uh, it was a one-time uh, job, so I took the plunge and did it. Okay, okay. Well, thank you very much for, for sharing that, that experience with, with everyone. It's, it's always nice you know, for, for people to hear the details of other, other authors' experiences doing things like this. And you're the first person, you're the, I believe you are the first author we've had who's, who's come to us from, from Google Plus with content like that. So that's, that's great to hear about how that worked. Um, uh, the last question I always like to ask in these interviews is um, if there was one thing we could build for you on LeanPub or one thing we could fix, what would you ask us to do for you? I'd like you to improve the LeanPub storefront by both uh, promo- promoting it more uh, among readers and uh, making book, uh, books more discoverable for authors. The reason I say it should be uh, more promoted for readers is because um, uh, although you have, for example, some uh, uh, social media uh, profiles, um, um, they are. Uh, they don't have, for example, uh, many followers uh, uh, as many as uh, uh, such a platform would deserve. For example, and uh, Limpad itself is uh, relatively little known. Uh, I have been discussing Limpad with others, uh, both, uh, for example, Google Plus uh, users or others uh, online. And uh, although there's interest in such a kind of platform, for example, a platform for, for publishing works in progress, it is little known between uh, uh, both authors and the readers. So uh, it would be better to promote, to make uh, uh, readers and authors aware of it more. And as for uh, discoverability of books, uh, I think uh, it would be useful to have some kind of uh, algorithmic uh, recommendations, even something as basic as, uh, uh, for example, the readers uh, who bought this book also bought uh, this other one, or uh, some kind of topic recommendations. Even from the homepage, uh, it's a bit difficult to get to the LeanPub store itself. It's more a, a homepage oriented to authors than uh, readers. Uh, you have uh, to click a menu to get to the store. And there are only a couple of major categories of, uh, of the store. For example, featured and uh, bestsellers. Um, 
before drilling down to specific categories, for example, computers and software, programming languages, and so on, you have to open one of these categories, uh, click on a very long uh, list, uh, and scroll down, uh, uh, way down, for example, to reach uh, a popular programming language like Python, which is way down in the alphabetical list of programming languages. If you enter, for example, uh, the words uh, of my book uh, in the search box, box, you don't get any results. You have to type the exact, uh, the, the full title. And this is also for other books. Uh, and it would be better to have uh, more discoverability of uh, books, uh, of titles or categories, more accessible. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for that uh, really great and very specific feedback. We really appreciate hearing things like that. One of the things that we are aware of is that we do sort of naturally approach things from an author's perspective. And so the book discoverability, the search in particular in our bookstore and things like that are things that we are areas where we know we need to improve. And your, in particular, your, your description of the experience of like trying to drill down into a category being difficult is definitely something that, that we, we want to improve. And there's, there's a lot of other things around discoverability and interaction, you know, things like, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying we're going to do this, but, you know, things like letting authors have followers in the way that you might typically have on, on other, other sites. We do, we do have, we do have recommendation features where, you know, we, we show, top sellers like this one, but, but, but they are obviously not surfaced as well as they, as they should be. Uh, so thank you very much for sharing that. Uh, and, and thank you very much uh, for being a Lean Pub author and for taking the time to do this interview. I really enjoyed it. Uh, thanks to you and thanks uh, to the listeners uh, of uh, the podcast uh, who follow us uh, this, uh, this way. Thanks very much. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review and like and subscribe wherever you found it. And if you would like to be a Lean Pub author, please go to our website at leanpub.com. Thank you.